Welcome to the Venture Fizz Podcast. I'm Keith Klein, the host of our show. In this podcast, I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This includes lots of discussions with founders, investors, and operating executives. And for today's show, I'm really excited because I had a chance to interview Sean Ford. He is the Chief Marketing Officer at LogMeIn. Sean has built a name for himself as one of the top marketing executives in the software industry, where he is now leading a massive marketing function for a company that is generating north of a billion in revenue. But what you might not know about Sean is the fact that he was also a co-founder of YouPromise, which was a consumer success story in the Boston tech scene back in the day. In this podcast, we cover lots and lots of great topics. We talk about the background story on creating YouPromise, which actually has so many great alumni doing spectacular things in the Boston tech scene today, how he built a career that led him down the path to being a chief marketing officer at a publicly traded company, a look under the hood of the marketing function at LogMeIn, and lots, lots more. Okay, before we get into my interview with Sean, I do need to ask you a small favor. If you enjoy this episode and it's the first time you're listening to the VentureFizz podcast, please make sure you subscribe. You don't want to miss our future episodes as we have some amazing guests coming up that you don't want to miss. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Sean. I always like to just really go far back into someone's history, like even going way back, if we could get a background of your uh, even upbringing, like where'd you grow up? What'd your parents do for work? Yeah. So, uh, boy, I, I grew up in, I was born in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, both of my parents were originally from Boston, however, and had relocated out to, uh, to Chicago. My father, uh, was going to school at Northwestern to get his PhD in uh, chemical engineering. And he ended up working his way up through the labs and, uh, of Amoco oil and then British petroleum and became a chief executive of British petroleum. Uh, reporting to Sir John Brown in uh, London. So that was an exciting ride. He, uh, he sort of first person, first generation to go to college uh, anywhere in the family on either the, uh, my mother or father's side. Uh, my mom raised uh, four uh, boys. I was the oldest of the four. Oldest of the so, four. So that's, uh, <laughs> you can imagine it was a handful. We had a, a male parakeet and a male dog. So she was, uh, she was surrounded by uh, testosterone uh, and, um, I ended up growing up in Chicago. I, I played ice hockey. Uh, I played ice hockey through uh, through high school. Was recruited and and uh, came out uh, back to Massachusetts to go to Williams College, where uh, I played. Uh, I was a goalie there for four years and um, had a great experience. So I was an English major, uh, largely because I was a decent writer and uh, and had an interest in a broad array of of subjects. So of course, liberal arts was easy for me to. To go into, and that's how I put my roots back down in um, in Massachusetts. Um, I, uh, you know, went from there to, uh, you know, because most people when they leave college, they have no idea what they want to do, especially coming out of liberal arts. And I was lucky enough to to have uh, a connection and to be interviewed and, and take a job with Monitor Company, which was a strategy consulting firm. It's now Monitor Deloitte where I uh, really did over the next sort of nine years, I spent about seven years at Monitor because I went there, went to business school and came back, but but really cut my teeth on, you know, what is business, what drives value, how to do cost analysis, all the blocking and tackling of, of really uh, strategy and tactics that, you know, kind of gave me a good perspective on not marketing per se, but some of the things you do in marketing and a broad array of different business models and clients. So that was sort of an early proving ground. 
Um, I will, you know, I will say that it was, uh, it was also, I think more importantly for me, a place that spent a ton of time on, uh, how to have effective conversations, how to give productive feedback, uh, really, you know, frame discussions in ways that help you remove blind spots. And, and those are the types of things that I think I've really used consistently throughout my career, both as a manager and in terms of trying to get things accomplished at the companies where I've worked. So uh, Monitor taught me a number of things, but it was a great early beginning. Yeah, it's great foundation for anyone's career to get that type of exposure and experience to those types of companies and the problems you're solving. Sure. And and then, you know, from strategy, you ended up as one of the co-founders of Upromise, correct? That's right. That's and right. So, uh, you know, it's I, I took uh, uh, myself and uh, two friends, one person who I was introduced to and another person who I knew at Monitor Company. You know, if, if you go way back in the, you know, the time machine, the late 90s, you know, after Al Gore invented the internet, everyone was sitting here saying, um, hey, let's, uh, let, let's jump on that bandwagon. Um, right. And if you remember those early business models, it was really interesting. It was people were getting funding, and this is no exaggeration, on napkins. I mean, it was, mm -hmm. it was uh, Wild West. And so, you know, you had people that just decided, and this sort of dates my age, but you, people would say, you know, I have a great business idea. Let's say, let's sell cosmetics online. And then that was the business, right? Um, right. So you promise was something that we thought was, was one of the first brick and click ideas where it was, you know, anchor brands, big name companies, um, McDonald's, General Motors, a whole bunch of them that, uh, that we could develop a loyalty program with and then have any dollars spent through those partner companies go into a 529 plan for whomever you chose uh, to help save for college. And so myself and, and the two uh, colleagues that I had, we got together, put the business plan together, uh, connected up with several other people in the area, Jeff Bus Gang being one, uh, Michael Bronner being another of, of uh, Digitas, and uh, really started to grow that thing out um, from nothing. So I did a bit of everything at that company. So it was you and two other people that came up with the original idea before like Jeff Bus Gang got involved and others? Yeah, the original idea really came from uh, someone named Chris Boyce, who's the uh, current CEO of Virgin Pulse here in Boston. Mm -hmm. And uh, sure. Chris was at Trilogy and had done a project at Harvard Business School on this concept. Uh, Bronner had done a ton of loyalty work. And so he knew, you know, through uh, various Miles programs and American Express, all the companies that he had as part of at the before, but Digitas, uh, they sort of, you know, seed funded and and along with General Catalyst, we we pulled together some folks and and uh, raised, you know, over a hundred million dollars in two rounds for the idea. It was, it was a pretty pretty exciting time. And what I think is impressive about you, Promise, not only the social mission that the company had and how quickly it gained traction, but the alumni that have spawned off from <laughs> you, Promise, that have gone on to do amazing things, whether founding a, their own company that has scaled or being in executive leadership roles. It's just, we did an alumni spider web a couple of years ago and it was incredible how many people. I saw that and you know, Sheila Marcello at care and, uh, and uh, you know, Jeff obviously who I'm close with and it's, it was a great group and it was really interesting because what you got was a bunch of people, I think back then that, that saw that you needed something a little more substantive than just to put something online. Um, so you had a lot of people that I think saw a future of combining, you know, like I said, brick and click to develop something of value around a compelling uh, need. And that was, you know, savings for kids. So it kind of brought together a perfect storm of both, I think, 
you know, strategy, talent, and, and, and idea, um, which was, you know, pretty rare. And, and what was your role throughout that time you were at you promise well when i started i think i was in charge of finding pens that was my <laughs> first it was it was pretty pretty bad I, but i know i we we sort of divvied up uh, the responsibilities i had responsibility for um a chunk of marketing pro, uh, product management i also took on uh, some business development and and uh, once we started to bring in customers i took over client services and then you know operated across the board uh as as a member of the founding team was that when you started to get experience in marketing? Was that kind of your first exposure there? Yeah, it was, and it was it was interesting. It was also, you know, I, I had the, I built the first website. You know, we came up with came up with the name uh, of the company, which was a whole interesting story in and of itself. But but I I do, you know, thinking back to putting something online and and learning how to build a website in this environment. If you imagine we were a registered broker dealer, so it was more than just let's throw up some colors and images and a brand. Every single page of the website had to be approved by the SEC. So uh, so trying to thread that as well as getting input from big Fortune 500 companies about what they wanted, it was uh, it was a little bit like a Rubik's Cube, putting something together that everybody could uh, could agree to. So I had experience building the site. You know, we had millions of users uh, or people register very early. So it was it was right out of the frying pan into the fire in the very first foray, both into marketing and thinking about e-commerce and online transactions. We'll have to go into the Internet Archive to see what the version 1.0 looked like. Yeah, don't judge me. <laughs> now, it ultimately was acquired by Sally May. Yeah, it was by exactly. Sally does May. it still like operate today? Like I, it does. It I does. Think, yeah, I thought it operates it yeah. within uh, within Sally May. Yes, it does. Okay. And then what did you do after you promise? Well, so after you promise, I went, uh, I did a couple of sort of other startups. Uh, I did some consulting work, interestingly, uh, around the not-for-profit space. I, I helped turn around a foundation. I was just doing some, basically taking some time after putting in what were, you know, 80 hour weeks back in those days. Right. And, and just sort of reconnected. Uh, ultimately though, what I ended up doing was thinking I needed to find something a little more substantive. So I took a job, um, after a few twists and turns with uh, Oracle. So Oracle had started to do uh, vertical acquisitions in specific industries where there was a broad sort of volume of data, but not a lot of structure around it and felt like acquiring best in class companies in those industries, they could you know, plug it into their horizontal products like their ERP and CRM systems, those kind of things, database. So they acquired a local Boston company, which you'll be familiar with, which was Profit Logic. Sure, uh, which yep. uh, which was uh, you know a number of those guys went off to Demandware, but but in this case um, they had just announced the acquisition of Profit Logic, and my first office mate at uh, Monitor Company gave me a call because he was at Profit Logic and said that they were looking for someone to run marketing for the retail business unit, which was comprised of a company called Retech. Company called Profit Logic, 360 Commerce, among others. It's about a $350 million business unit within uh, within Oracle, and that's how I ended up uh, moving in there and uh, started my career there for four years. And four years at Oracle, like that's uh, you know experience that I'm sure was also just taught you a different way, whether it was you know a different way of marketing or you know you're dealing with an enterprise software giant or database giant, everything, right? So what did you learn at your time at Oracle? Yeah, it's a really good question. The so I would say several things. One that uh, you know I I thought I had the best job other than the CMO job at Oracle because I ended up 
taking on responsibility for all of Oracle's business units and industries, their vertical industries. So I had a, a collection of, you know, pick 15 to 20 companies that had been acquired that um, were, uh, had, you know, sort of cut their teeth and survived, you know, the ins and outs of being startups and now were being pieced together as a part of a more substantive vertical. So I got the experience of putting together teams at scale, uh, building the model that would work in a matrixed organization that was Oracle at the time, because each of the business units had a GM and learn how to leverage a much bigger and broader set of uh, assets with that Oracle brought to bear in terms of brand and scope and global reach. So the first thing was, how do you build an organization? The second, how do you leverage the broader system? And then third, and this is something I see a lot of people, especially in the startup culture, maybe undervalue, it's how do you get something done that is meaningful in an organization that's at scale with established policies and practices. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, if you're in a startup, there's the thrill of, I thought about it yesterday, I, I drew it up today and I, I did it the next day and it was in market. And there's sort of that adrenaline rush of instant bloodstream gratification. There's something that I think is an art and a skill to be able to manage change in large organizations. And um, I, I think that that was maybe one of the biggest things I took away was how to do that in a way that wasn't bureaucratic, but still drove um, you know, effective results. And you reported right into the CMO of, of Oracle, right? That's correct. I did. And I, I reported initially into Duncan Angove, who was the GM of retail, who's now the president of Infor. And I uh, I uh, then reported into Judy Sim, who was the chief marketing officer. And from there, you ended up working with a couple more startups, correct? That's right. So I did. I jumped. You know, I hadn't ever been a chief marketing officer officially, right? I had been a VP of of uh, marketing or VP of product management, and I um, I jumped from there to my first CMO job, which was with a company called Syncsort down in uh, New Jersey, and it's been recently uh, sold a couple of times. But it was a data integration and a data protection company. It's one of those things I, I used to call the guts of the enterprise. It was uh, it wasn't the sexiest software, but it, it worked really well. And um, it was private equity backed and, and did that, uh, decided that the commute to New Jersey driving there every every week was a little bit rough after two years. So I uh, did another startup here in Boston uh, called ZMags, which uh, ended up, uh, you know, we thought about growing and myself and someone I knew from Upromise, uh, we got together and, and started to grow that. Uh, did not turn out the way we wanted. So you learn from, you know, things that work and things that don't. Uh, and then was recruited into uh, to Avid, uh, which is a sort of an old uh, stallion of the Boston tech scene, the, the pioneer of of uh, you know sort of nonlinear editing and and uh, music, movies, storage, and distribution of content uh, out in Burlington. And it's a very you know uh, sexy company in the sense it's involved with the entertainment industry and lots of challenges from that market, as you can imagine, given the pressures that they have in terms of content creation and, and cost efficiencies. And, you know, founded by another legendary entrepreneur in Boston, that's Bill right. Warner. Bill Warner, that's right, who's a, a, a wonderful man and, uh, you know, really, really fun. And a lot of people you find that technology, they interact with it every day if they turn on the radio or if they go to a movie and it's it's there. Um, so, and, and that was your first time as a CMO oh. of a publicly traded company. So what was that like? 
Well, I mean, so if you go back again in the Wayback Machine, so a- a- Avid had, you know, when I got there after several months, um, you know, they did a, a sort of a leadership change with some of the folks. Uh, Gary Greenfield uh, exited, a uh, new C- CEO came in, and then there was some issues around um, delisting the stock, which was uh, an, an interesting experience as, as the stock was delisted and then ultimately relisted after uh, a bunch of hard work by the people who were, who were you know, employees there involved. And it was a um, learning experience from both, uh, you know, how do you manage in that environment with that, uh, I wouldn't say distraction, but that challenge in front of you. And also, you know, really try to create and recreate how we think about products that were largely physical in nature, right? I mean, there were, there were discs and, and you, you, it wasn't, it wasn't a, a, a cloud-based company per se. And it went through that transformation, which was, which was interesting. But, um, you know, I took away from, I took away from that. I think, how do you sort of think about reinventing a brand and, and think about lining the go-to-market back up in a new and sort of rejuvenated way, given the pressures that the company was under? Right. Sure. And I'm sure like that, uh, the pressures of the public market was just a whole different dynamic than what you're accustomed to in startups. That's true. Although the, the, the benefit, the silver lining in the position we were in is you can, you could, you know, pretty readily identify that if you're delisted, you do have a little bit of latitude to make the you know right steps and corrective actions that you need to without some of the pressures of the public market. So it's kind of an interesting uh, interesting benefit that I wouldn't wish on anyone, but that's how I would think about the the positive side of that. Got it. And that brings us to today. So you're the chief marketing officer at LogMeIn, one of the pillar tech companies in the Boston tech scene with over a billion dollars in revenue and lots of great things happening. But I don't like to assume everyone knows who LogMeIn is. So why don't you share with us, you know, what does LogMeIn do? Sure. Uh, so LogMeIn is a top 10 SaaS company, global, uh, a little bit over $6 billion market cap. We have leadership positions in really three primary markets. One is uh, collaboration and communication in the UCC space. One is engagement, and one is identity and access management. And so each of those areas, we have a, a number one position. Uh, we have uh, you know over 30 million users on our platform, about 4 million daily active users. So there's a lot of scale. And we have a broad array of products that range from you know sort of very high velocity products to high consideration products uh, in terms of how we think about our go-to-market. Um, 20 offices around the world, about 2,800 employees, uh, plus or minus, and um, you know, a number of leading brands that you're probably familiar with with GoToMeeting, JoinMe, LastPass, uh, again, all SaaS and uh, really, um, really built on the idea of trying to connect seamlessly uh, without friction and letting people work how they want, where they want, and when they want. One of the things that I like to note, and I know this was before the, your time at LogMeIn, but in the um, you know earlier days of LogMeIn, I don't think the company gets enough credit for how pioneering the company was and what a lot of companies are doing today, that in the way of growth hacking. So I remember back in the early days of the app store, LogMeIn was one of the highest grossing paid apps for their products. And there was just this whole new concept of a freemium model that companies weren't thinking of, but now is very common. And LogMeIn was one of the pioneers of that. 
And I, I know at the time, Sean Ellis, who is, you know, has made a name for himself with lots of other companies like Dropbox and others, and has kind of coined that term growth hacker. C can you talk about the early days? And again, I know this is pre, you know, your time, but it is a history of how that, I think the company really started to scale. Sure. That, that's, uh, so I think that you're, you're right. I do think that we don't um, get as much credit as I, as I think we, we should around the concept of the freemium model. I mean, look, if I was going to be, be harsh, I would say, well, I mean, you know, they built the engineers, uh, built a great product and then gave it away for free. So, you know, marketing that uh, is not particularly challenging. I think under the hood, it was a lot of what we would say table stakes of, of how do you optimize search? How do you, uh, optimize each of the sort of digital channels that you're using, but, but don't really put too much into the brand because the brand and the name was just driven by the volume that you drove in terms of the number of people that ended up using the service, uh, for free. And I think that, um, us as a company, uh, you know, started to pivot more into how do you then use that product as, as, um, a way to drive greater information on our customers uh, through trials. So early stage, I think under the hood, it was a lot of, you know, sort of optimizing that high velocity search business. I think in the last four years, with the expansion of the size of the company, with our expansion into different markets, you know, the 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 work here, I would say, is probably the most challenging and the most complex marketing job I've ever had, uh, and. Um, you know, we've really pivoted now to having a full stream, both online freemium as part of a go-to-market, as well as a significant touch business that also we rely on heavily to drive our products and to sell. And now fast forward to today and under your leadership, LogMeIn has so many different products under its umbrella. You know, there was a major acquisition that, you know, closed out last year, right? With the Citrix go-to-meeting acquisition or the merger of the two, I guess. So the, how... How, what does your organization look like? I mean, you're operating at such a large scale now. Like what, how does your marketing function? What does it look like? Sure. Well, there's a few hundred people in marketing here. Um, we have structured the, the organization around a combination of functional expertise as well as market expertise. So, you know, we look, we have a traditional product marketing organization that focuses on each of those businesses that I mentioned before, communications and collab, uh, engagement and identity and access. We have then demand gen professionals that focus on uh, the different channels I mentioned for search optimization display as well as events as well as um, just thinking about the appropriate marketing mix uh, there's a brand team that thinks about how we're starting to simplify and rally around more of the log me in brand uh, and and raise that up to become less of a house of brands and more of a hybrid branded house and then of course we have um, you know, comms team and all the other different functional areas that report in. So there's six or seven people that report in uh, to the function. And then we uh, we align them with the various products and uh, businesses and markets that we play. Uh, and it is a global organization. We are located, you know, we have 20 offices around the world. We don't have marketing in every office, but they're scattered across, you know, 10, 11 different offices around the world and uh, try to work and collaborate uh, remotely using our products, which is always nice. Absolutely. Now, if you look back to marketing, I know you promised was more like consumer, but, um, you know, if you look at maybe going back to Oracle, 
Like how has marketing evolved and changed since your memories at Oracle to where it is today and what how LogMeIn does marketing? Yeah, so if I frame up if I just frame up LogMeIn's approach, it's just to give, you know, you an idea of of how we think about it. You know, we have products that range from high velocity to high consideration, right? So if you imagine that spectrum, you've got, you know, the impulse purchase low price on the one end, uh, all the way up to, you know, a considered highly consultative purchase like a bold 360 at the other end. And then we also have, you know, a different you know, types of markets where you've got more mature and steady state markets and you've got growth markets. And so you think about our products, they fit everywhere in that that little map. And so the complexity and what we're seeing now that didn't exist as much before is one is just the explosion of, of data and analytics that you have uh, with at your fingertips with which to try to either assess your performance uh, or make choices. Um, back at Oracle, you know, there was a very different, uh, a different feel. It was, you know, Oracle kind of owned the stack. And as a result, there was a lot of uh, supplier power that was driven into any sale uh, where people sort of out of necessity gravitated towards that stack. Mm-hmm. Here, you know, we are in a BYOA, BYOD world where uh, we have to, it's almost like that stack is flipped upside down. You know, companies and the pressure that you have is to try to develop products that can be interoperable and accommodate any go-to-market. So the effect on marketing then is that, you know, we also with, with online, with sort of cloud-based products, with SaaS products, with uh, products that are, uh, you know, you can measure every interaction, you're dealing with a volume of data that you didn't have back then, nor did you really need as much of, right? Just basic segmentation back in those days. And now you can individually segment the activity that you um, you want to try to um, call out. So I would say that that's a big change. Um, the, other, the other thing I would say is that, um, you know, there is a a real focus on usage data or usage as a barometer for um, driving both product innovation as well as marketing campaigns, um, a, a far greater ability to take that data and create custom offerings as well as uh, create custom marketing campaigns and programs based on, you know, specific time and uh, usage information rather than sort of generic, that's a sales guy, they might want to buy what we have. Um, so those are some fairly big, uh, big differences. I, the last one is, you know, it used to be very, um, things were very event oriented uh, right now and sort of on menu event, like go to event, purchase a package, execute an event, capture business cards, call business cards. Uh, now, I, I think things are much more lightweight uh, much more, you know, one to many high velocity events online and um, and trying to, you know, essentially democratizes the ability to reach people in the world we're in, whereas it used to, again, have to have a big budget and ability to create a platform that you had people travel to to hear about you. And again, that's been flipped upside down. So the trade show has been flipped upside down with more like webinars type of thing. Or even the trade shows, yes, or even the trade shows themselves have become smaller, more focused, and more thought leadership and value in nature versus communal in nature. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah, it's been a big change. Yeah. As you're as you're building your team and, and hiring, like what do you look for in terms of uh, the, the qualities, you know, outside of this scope of the role of you know, certain requirements of what the person may need, but what do you look for when you're hiring people for your team? Sure. Well, I think, look, uh, you know, it goes without saying there's a certain level of, of just intellectual rigor that 
people have to get over. I think it does point to one of the big changes in marketing, which is a need to have people who, who are thinking strategically and who are comfortable with, even though I was an English major, comfortable with numbers and uh, and being able to sort of really dig in on on data and analysis. And so, so certainly there's a level of that. But I think that the things that really end up driving success is more the the how people deploy their their, their skill set and it's really around I look for people who are highly open uh, open to new ideas open to feedback um, open to uh, the fact that they might be wrong uh, I think that's a big one um, I think there's a certain level of accountability that I'll look for and and you know one of the things that I will always ask people when I interview them every time and it may be the only question I've ever really needed to ask is talk to me about the toughest piece of feedback you've ever gotten and what did you do about it and you hear the person's response whoever it is and then you push on it so that it's not a uh, a well you know I tried to convince the CEO that this was going to make us a lot of money and I couldn't do it and I was right anyway but like that kind of is is not really the right. the goal but it's something that you know you push on and you hear people's logic how aware are they what did they do how self improving are they so really that's it's really it's really that rigor that openness and that accountability are the three big things and then i would say the last one for me is probably a general lightness of spirit you want people who are energy givers and willing to do things rather than energy takers and i think we've probably all worked with both types and it's the former's always better absolutely um you know, I always like to give some advice to founders that may be listening to this podcast. At what point should someone bring on a VP of marketing? And at what point should you bring in a, a like a CMO? Like what's the difference between the two and when should you hire one or the other? Well, I think that the first thing, if if I were you know starting a company, I think what the first thing you have to do is is basically understand that that a marketing executive is not a marketing executive is not a marketing executive. So there's a lot of different flavors of skills that a company may need. Um, a, a high velocity sort of customer facing consumer product may want someone to come in early, tell an interesting story, and focus on brand. Um, if you have, you know, a, a company that is more, you know, B2B and, and substantive and in terms of its, uh, its product being more technical, you might be able to wait on the brand. You might be able to wait on that upfront, um, you know, sort of finish and, and focus more on bringing someone in who understands go to market mechanics and enterprise selling and content creation. So I, I won't dodge your question. I'll, I'll answer it, but I do think we have to delineate there's different flavors of marketing executives. And I think at the end of the day you find that you know from my perspective i think of marketing as more um, responsible for building and accelerating demand for your company and doing that in a strategic and hopefully business relevant way so why do i say that because if you're a small company and you're looking to really get a good understanding of the go-to-market and and have a forward leaning executive who is strategic and who can understand you know the right buyer and the right um, you know approach as it relates to telling a good compelling story for you and your company. Then I think you know you can't bring someone in early enough. 
Um, I think you want to do that. I would say you want to lay the lay the groundwork for that at an early stage. If uh, if you feel like it's it's something that is more sort of channel driven or back end, then maybe you wait a little while and bring them in later. But I do think that um, that in any case, I, I I I believe you know the function itself is is a nice muscle to develop up front, probably earlier rather than later, no matter where you are in the in the uh, value chain. And what like the titles are nebulous, right? Sometimes somebody might have a CMO title or VP, yet maybe not actually doing what is purely defined as such role. So what is the difference between like a, a, a true CMO? Like what's what's a CMO do versus a VP of marketing? Well, I, I think ultimately CMO has got to be a, a scalable, broad manager of all of the different components of a marketing organization. So you should probably have a depth of experience in a number of the primary functions, but also be uh, be broad enough as a manager to be able to balance and understand the effect of the total marketing mix as it relates to driving the business or driving bookings. If you're a VP of marketing, what you oftentimes find is that there's a specialization that happens or there's a specific area of focus like demand gen uh, where you know they're really more tactical and more execution oriented. Doesn't mean it doesn't mean there isn't strategy, but if you split the spectrum between strategy and tactics, you find the VP of marketing is probably going to go, you know, 70-30 on tactics to strategy and the CMO should probably be the flip side mm -hmm. of 30 to 70. Um, where that 30 is also composed of, of just broad sort of talent development and, and people management. So I think it's a, it's a matter of skill mix and scale is what I would say um, is probably the biggest driver. Got it. That's good feedback. You're a very active member of the Boston tech scene. You're a board member at MyTex and friends of the Fort Point channel. So what, what's excites you about the Boston tech scene these days? Well, I think, you know, it's it's interesting. I, I think one is that I, I don't think I've seen a, a better collection of talent uh, for the market that we have here. Uh, you know, I think with with the schools in the area and, and being located downtown uh, in the uh, seaport or the innovation district, I, I think we have seen an absolute uplift in the caliber and quality of of. Uh, interested parties to come join the company. And I think that that is a very robust talent pool is, is, is really exciting. I do, I do think that, um, being a part of establishing Boston as one of the great tech centers in the United States is is uh, is also a particularly interesting, very robust set of startups, uh, established companies, drawing in bigger companies, uh, and really being somewhat early stage, to be honest with you. I mean, if you think about it, relative to Silicon Valley and some of the other places that are there, that's exciting. And I, and I also think that there's um, there's a real nice, uh, I would say, partnership that we've had at least with the city. I think the city's been very accommodating in terms of encouraging this type of behavior and and uh, these types of companies to be uh, investing um, in in the city itself and and in making it a home and a hub for for tech and innovation. So those three things are, I would say, pretty pretty exciting from my perspective. Speaking of a home and a hub in Boston, I would have to say your offices in Boston are amazing with the basketball court and like I've, I've had the chance to tour them they're pretty spectacular yeah we're lucky we're lucky and i think that you know people spend a lot of time working hard we've we've as a company uh, across the all of our offices have decided to really make sure we invest to make it a place that people look forward to coming into 
Are there any companies, you know, you talk about the robust nature of the Boston tech scene. There is a ton of things going on. Any companies that come to mind that are on your radar you find interesting? Well, I, log me in. I would say I find yep, log me in. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I would say that, uh, you know, I, I, I think that there are a lot of them out there. I, I think to me, there's more of an interesting trend that I've seen around just, uh, just innovation. And that's, you know, blockchain technology is something that I think a lot of uh, certainly VC and, and investors are starting to dig into. Um, I, I, you know, more and more, I think that there is is a is going to be a, a burgeoning market for companies that are starting in that space. Um, and a number of my colleagues that are in the VC community and out there are working in that space now. And and so for me, that's probably the most exciting uh, piece. I, I, you know, I th there's a lot of tried and true companies that are out there that are still sort of plugging away, and startups are you know popping up all the time. But for me, it's really that trend. I think we're going to start to see um, more and more investment there. Yeah, that, I mean, definitely the trends that I'm seeing in Boston is. You know, Boston's known for solving hard problems, and that is definitely the case right now with the different different startups that are getting funded. And as you mentioned, blockchain and cryptocurrency, there's just so much activity right now. We actually did a four part series in January that outlined the different kind of aspects of you know what is you know kind of defining the space, and then what are the investors looking at, and what companies are popping up, and then the future. So it was uh, it was so much we had to do a four-part series to really give it the proper attention right yeah right. so much going on yeah great well sean thanks so much for taking the time and for sharing your words of wisdom i always like to you know pass the mic back to close things out if there's anything you'd like to promote well, I, I think, um, you know, I, I don't have anything in particular other than you know, I would say that log me in is uh, we're hiring. We are we are actively looking for for people who I think, you know, fit the qualities that I shared earlier. And um, and I, I know that, uh, you know, we're very excited about the fact that we've uh, you know, made continued moves to invest in Boston and in in uh, really taking a, a strong leadership position in the UCC space with our announcement of our intent to acquire uh, Jive Communications out in um, uh, Orem, Utah. And so, uh, you know, I can't go into a lot of detail there, but certainly excited about continuing to expand our leadership in UCC and um, and be a part of Boston for a long time to come. Logman is an important company and one of our anchors, so it's great to see the continued growth. And if you are interested in considering opportunities at Log Me In, you can certainly view their biz page on uh, VentureFizz, which has all their job openings, a lot more information about the company and its culture. Well, Sean, thanks again for taking the time. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Keith. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.